Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our podcast of Sciences Po Research, the podcast where we talk to a faculty of Sciences Po about their academic work that contributes to understanding and changing this world. In the last or first season of this podcast, we talked about Sciences Po researchers who work on environmental transformation of our societies. This is the first episode of the second podcast, where we talk to Sciences Po researchers who work on democratic institutions, democratic and non-democratic politics, the rise of populism, and the factors that drive those transformations and can solve uh, the problems that emerge. And I'm very happy to have today with me Pro uh, Professor Emiliana Grossman, who is an associate professor at the Center of European Studies and Comparative Politics at Sciences Po. Uh, Emiliana is somebody who's working exactly on those issues. He's recently published a book, Do Elections Still Matter? He's, and that's uh, what I'm very happy to say, he's a um, Sciences Po graduate. He uh -huh. started his career as a student at, at Sciences Po, which is a great inspirations, inspirations for all our um, political science uh, students. Uh, Emiliano has worked on many aspects of uh, modern politics. And today we'll mostly talk about your recent article, which is a review article in the Annual Review of Political Science on Media and Policy Making in the Digital Age. That gives me a special pleasure because we at Science Po are very proud of being an interdisciplinary institution. And here you actually bring together two literatures, political science literature and communication studies, and that makes it uh, such an interesting read. So if, if I ask you a question, what have you learned from writing this review of the two literatures. In, a, in, a, in one word, uh, are you becoming more optimistic or pessimistic to what extent governments can deliver on their promises to voters in the modern age when media landscape is changing? Well, I've learned things at, at different levels. I think uh, one, one of the, the starting points of, of the, this whole project, this is the beginning of a project, right? So it's not, it's not the end of it. It's, uh, is that the, those two literatures ought to talk to each other more. Uh, because I think that uh, communication specialists tend to a little bit undervalue or underestimate the importance of, of traditional political coalitions, cleavages, these kind of things, while the importance of communication is sometimes ignored by, by mainstream political scientists. So have I become more optimistic or pessimistic? I'm, I'd rather say I try to stay optimistic, but it's an effort. Uh, so the, <laughs> the, the major, my major conclusion... Uh, of this is that is that uh, governments are are fighting an uphill battle to stay on top of things when they communicate about their policy making and this is this generates a lot of costs right so for them and that's a, that's a battle that they can't possibly win entirely and that's that's my worry and yet governments have to communicate in order to govern well right so it's i think the the recent pandemic has shown that it's very important that you are able to communicate to your uh, to, to citizens to to solve a major crisis, many because many crises involve uh, change in behavior or or that people comply with certain rules. Yet we know that people who don't believe in government or who don't trust government don't comply as much, right? So that's that's part of why this this uh, changes and this those transformations in the media landscape are uh, representing a danger and a threat to good government. Yes, uh, so basically what you're saying is that media landscape is transforming itself 
for you, what is the uh, the basis at the root or the origin of this transformation, and when has it started? Is that the arrival of internet? Is that arrival of mobile broadband, internet, and social media? The rise of Facebook, the capacity of uh, certain types of politicians to manipulate the current environment. For you, when has it started and, uh, and, and uh, what from? I'm, I'm going to surprise you. I think the start is, is a long time ago. Like, so the, the, the golden age of, of uh, uh, public TV ended in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Until then, it is true, when General de Gaulle, for instance, uh, spoke on TV, everybody listened. And on the next day, every single newspaper in the country would comment on what General de Gaulle was saying. Uh, since the late 1970s in the US and the early 1980s in um, in uh, in most of Europe, you could decide to opt out of public TV, right? So when cable TV arrived, right? So basically you could switch to an American soap opera rather than, than watching the 8 p.m. news show, which was something religious back then. I, the young generations don't imagine that, but I, I still grew up in that age and, and so did you. Uh, but it's true that nowadays this idea of watching TV together has, has kind of disappeared. And so this, this created a, a unique channel that has ne had never existed before either because obviously newspaper weren't as powerful. Maybe radio was briefly had a similar role. But clearly that was the end of this very, very powerful TV. And then the, the, the other steps, the emergence of the internet, the emergence of, of social media and so, social networks, um, were more of accelerations of this trend. So this trend was first mostly about being able to opt out and to ignore what was going on in the political realm. Uh, and then also, and that's where internet changes things, to do, uh, to communicate about with others, many others, uh, about what was going on. And, and then social media basically gave you a new leverage, like what you, what you could say could be heard by by many, many other people and sometimes make you, make you a, a, an important or at least a, not, a significant actor in, uh, in this information world. So that's clearly when, when so at each of those steps, government encountered increasing competition for their, for attention. And we know that attention is a rare good, right? So it's a, uh, and the destruction of public attention is like destruct, destroying a public good, right? So there, uh, so I think that's, that's clearly where, where this process of acceleration has clearly uh, diminished the power. Yeah, we can say that it has diminished government power. Like government power was at its climax probably in the early 1970s and it has been declining ever since. So for you, the 1970s was, was the time when the government had monopoly on public attention. And then uh, we saw creation of competitive uh, industry where you have arrival of cable TV, which uh, some economists have shown has a, had a causal effect on yeah. the rise of uh, uh, extreme uh, parts of Republican Party in the US. And then, of course, internet and then, of course, social on media. Participation. There is a nice study by a former colleague of yours on, on Italy that shows that the, the that, uh, soap opera, American soap operas actually diminished turnout in Italy. Right? So there uh, was a very nice test. I especially appreciate your reference to my childhood as well. Uh, when I grew up, I was growing up in Soviet Union, the choice was probably even more limited than you can imagine when you did have uh, three or four channels of TV and the joke goes that you turn on TV for the first channel and there is Brezhnev. You turn to the second, the same Brezhnev. You switch to the third, Brezhnev again. You switch to the fourth and you see a KGB major who tells you, 
please stop switching. <laughs> and I think this uh, describes exactly the situation which we had in 1970s, which is completely different now. Mm. And uh, people initially thought that with the arrival of internet, this radical transparency, this actually good news for democratic processes, we would say that democratic governments would become more accountable. Non-democratic governments would be held to the account as well. Initially, when we, we had Green Revolution in Iran, uh, Arab Spring, people were talking about internet as a liberation technology. You sound more pessimistic. You sound like uh, the new media landscape actually complicates the work of democratic governments. No, I think there is positive and negative sides. Uh, very clearly, probably the, the 1960s more than the 1970s, because the 1970s were a period already of, of social unrest and contestation and so on and so forth, and also of questioning of government power. Uh, but the 1960s very clearly were a period... Maybe also the hate of the post-war period with high growth, uh, two-digit growth figures in most Western industrial uh, democracies. Uh, so that was clearly something that is probably was probably not ideal in terms of transparency and so on and so forth. And it's true that from the on the positive side, there was there was the hope. Um, there is this debate about equalization or normalization that that the internet contributed to. It equalized to the extent that it gave formerly marginal communities a new way of communicating, a new way of co coordinating, a new way of also speaking out to the rest of the world. And that's clearly a positive thing. I think it, it also has a positive impact in terms of the whole, I'm very much in favor of open data, the, the, the idea that, that researchers, but also journalists or, or any, any other person can actually check public figures, go on, read OECD data if, if they know how to do that. And I think that's very, very positive. And I think that's, a, that's clearly a progress. Now the problem is that with um, with that came also the 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 fact that there is there is people there is good users and bad users let's say and my 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 fear is that the bad users are winning with regard to the good good users usages so the good users would be this transparency that you're referring to which is clearly uh, positive but the the more negative users or the more problematic users are clearly that. It has been used also to spread uh, certain types of discourse, uh, certain uh, certain types of disinformation. Of course, you would know that. Of course, um, certain types of also very uh, like to enhance the negativity bias that is that is deep down in us, right? So that's not entirely we we actually we actually all have a negativity bias and we, we if we're sincere we we accept that even to our own like if you have two two types of news one is oh growth has increased and the other one 2000 dead in a car accident and uh i don't know where you're probably going to click on the car accident first right so maybe you're going to click on the other one afterwards because you're interested in that too but it's true that we are naturally uh, more sensitive to negative news than we are to positive news and um in in an area where news are no longer governed or there is uh, there's profusion of news, um, those who want to sell news are becoming better and better in creating clickbait and in uh, attracting um, more and more uh, clicks on on negative news. One of the, one of the visible consequences of this, I, I was reading a report uh, earlier today, is that even though crime and um, and burglaries and and any any kind of criminal activities and uh, have gone down in France, in feelings of insecurity have gone up. I'm not saying that there is a causal effect. I'm just saying that 
over the period where this happened, there is at the same time also this growing discrepancy between reality and feelings uh, that I believe uh, the internet and especially social media have been contributing to. Yes, there are several books by uh, Steven Pinker um, exactly. at Harvard, uh, I would say, uh, Renaissance man. Uh, he's just <laughs> easy, not easy to define as a, somebody from one discipline. He's writing exactly about the improvements in many ways in our uh, life and uh, civilization, which are not understood by the society exactly because of this negative media bias. I think uh, uh, we should go back to your discussion of attention economy, and this is what communication studies actually do, because uh, in communication studies, they also try to identify where this negative bias comes from in today's environment of social media. And I guess what you're saying is that bad news travel faster, even if they're false, uh, because people look for more outrageous, more exciting uh, content. And therefore, if you get your news from uh, social media, you may end up being more negative about the world and the government. Well, with regard to government, which is what I'm mostly interested in and what I would like to work on also in, in the years to come, is uh, my hunch is that the fact that there is more voices will create a competition for more negative news, right? So there, the fact that there is very many people trying to uh, say something meaningful about what government is doing will lead to priming government failures, real government failures. I'm not, not even, it doesn't even have to be... Uh, disinformation in that case or fake news but it's clear that nowadays when uh, when governments fail this is something that will be primed by everyone and and it will travel as you say bad news travel fast uh, this will be primed by everyone my my fear is that this will generally create the impression that government only fails even even though government might, might be doing very many good things the they will government will try to stand against that, against that and government allies will try to prime those more more positive aspects but my fear is that it will be the negative aspects that will have get a lot more of attention and therefore and this in turn will make it more difficult for for government to make certain measures uh, acceptable and to make people comply also we know we know that uh, people who don't trust government comply less for instance with taxes right so so, so or and or with uh, uh, climate transition policies or, or with public health me measures right so there, there there is a real cost involved to to uh, related to this to, to this priming of negative news and i think that's a general trend we haven't We don't have very good empirical proof of this. So for, for the time being, this is mostly a hunch, right? So and uh, I think it's it would be important to document this trend uh, over over a certain period of time because the, the uh, side effect of social media is that social media has a feedback effect on traditional media, right? So as social media is getting more and more attention, traditional media or legacy media, as we sometimes call them, like TV or, or newspapers or radio, will have to take into account what's going on on social media and thereby import this negative discourse also in mainstream media right so they're and and also giving voice to people who have become major actors on social media usually by priming negative more negative discourse or even populist discourse or even fake uh, fake news uh, by inviting them into into the mainstream media thereby further legitimizing and we're in, like that we're in a vicious circle of of reproduction of the worst practices of the media sector yes the latter phenomenon is actually being documented as we speak there is a recent paper by our colleague julia Caget, who will be yeah. on this podcast as well which shows that uh, mainstream media increasingly get their news from twitter 
And the same is also documented in a very different uh, environment by Ekaterina Zhuravskaya from Paris School of Economics. So indeed, mainstream media now understand that they cannot neglect what's going on on social media. And since social media is fast, they actually learn what's going on outside uh, from uh, social media as well. But let me go back to your, unfortunately, pessimistic uh, prediction that this misinformation and negative information, disproportionately negative information which travels on social media, uh, has a real and not perceived impact on government efficiency. I'm an economist. Economists are known to be less excited about big government, but every economist also agrees we need government. We need good government, efficient government to provide public goods, to fight uh, uh, global warming and uh, um, invest in the future of our generations, in future generations. But what are exactly the mechanisms at work that you have in mind? If we have less trust in government, we don't comply with the law, we don't pay taxes, uh, if we criticize uh, democratic institutions, how, how does that really impact uh, the capacity of government to deliver? Well, I think the we've had a, a number of really interesting uh, illustrations of this during the recent pandemic. I, I think that's that's probably the most exaggerated cases, but there there is others that we will find on uh, in other areas. But during the pandemic, we've had, um, for instance, public displays of of disagreement with social distanciation measures, right? So leading uh, very often fueled by conspiracy theories on on Bill Gates, on on chips implanted in us, and and so on and so forth, but which led to to uh, regular demonstrations in Germany. Uh, there was a when the cur- a curfew was was installed in in the Netherlands, people went out to the streets and 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 broke business into businesses and so on and so forth. So I think there is uh, there is a, I'm not saying that those people were didn't know why they were there or anything, but I'm but I'm saying that that uh, the so, the social media discourse and the consequences of social media discourse can can fuel this kind of discontent and thereby contribute to exaggerating uh, also the positions that in principle are minority positions and the, and also relativizing the positions of scientists. That's another major issue because it's not just the government which is being questioned. It's also the agreement on the consensus on scientific knowledge that, that can be challenged that way as one of the factors informing good government policy. And and I think there uh, there is a clear danger there that, that people will be listening to whatever suits them best. And I think uh, climate transition policies are similar. We're currently observing a growing cleavage in this area that we thought we had overcome. Right. So in, in recent figures, we see that there's an, in, especially in richer countries, which are the ones that have implemented most climate transition policies, there is an increasing opposition to those very climate transition, transition policies. People are very hostile, for instance, towards uh, closing down city centers to uh, cars that do, do not correspond to certain uh, environmental standards and so on and so forth. We know scientifically that this is absolutely necessary to prevent those cities from stoking right so there and 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 very clearly people are questioning that because it doesn't suit them and the and what the what social media do is that they encourage this and thereby they do have visible consequences of on compliance i think so there there is there is starting to be a couple of studies on this right on on how how trust and uh and uh, visions affect your compliance with with uh, government regulations. And I think that, that is where the cost is situated. Most. Yeah, these are two very different examples on yeah. um, car zoning, on clean cars policies. 
you probably decide that not in my backyard, so I don't want to switch to a more expensive, cleaner car. And then I use social media discourse to self-justify my battle against the government. On uh, COVID, of course, uh, you don't believe in vaccination, but the problem is when you don't vaccinate yourself, you risk your own life, which is not great. I don't like you to die. But what also happens, you also risk others' lives, Mm. those who believe in science, but the more people are not vaccinated, the more people are at risk among those who believe in science. And in that sense, uh, this is exactly an example where we want uh, common good, common action. Uh, We want uh, government to force other people to get vaccines, even if they are skeptical about about the benefits of science. But coming back to your example, that it's not only government that loses trust, but it's also uh, experts, scientists, also mainstream media. So the elites uh, are being questioned, increasingly questioned, uh, because of this uh, transformation of media landscape. And whenever we say anti-elite political movement, that's populism, right? And here is a question for you. So whenever we talk about previous uh, generations of populists, they would always jump on a new communications technology. So the very first uh, American populist uh, presidential candidate, uh, William Jennings Bryan, would Mm -hmm. use the social media of that time, which was Telegraph Mm -hmm. and Railroads for his uh, election campaign. Uh, We can also mention uh, use of radio by Nazis, by Mm -hmm. Goebbels. We can also talk about Father Cochrane in in the U.S., who was also extreme right uh, radio host. Uh, Again, we already mentioned uh, cable TV used by Republicans. What is so special, you think, about this age, 21st uh, century, about social media? Uh, We see populists are using them. Well, it is clear that the battle of social media is like at the beginning, as you said, it was a great hope. Also, the internet, not not social media, but uh, the battle of social media is clearly won by certain political forces and not the others, right? So there, it is true that certain people who, who wouldn't have existed even in in the age of legacy media due to gatekeeping, which is not always positive. Like there, I, there is no reason why why media editors should cancel out certain candidates and so on and so forth. But I think from that point of view, there is an equalizing effect here, which is not entirely negative because it's ultimately democratic expression and we have to deal with it. Otherwise, uh, uh, we have an issue of, of uh, yeah, cancelling out uh, people's, people's voices on, on certain issues. But... Um, I don't know if there's something radically new. I, my, my feeling is also, maybe that's my advanced age, that my feeling is that it's just a series of repetitions and it's true that every new technology uh, brings something new, but this newness doesn't last forever, right? So there, uh, Marshall McLuhan had this idea that the, the media is a mas- message, so true, there is something going on there, but he also said that very quickly it becomes very naturalized, right? So there, and it's true that uh, ultimately the, those, those who were new ones will become old one day, right? So from that point of view i i'm i don't pretend that this is that this is radically new it's just the change of our age so that's why we're interested in <laughs> in this particular change because we haven't lived through the emergence of of public tv as a mass phenomenon which was probably even more important i'm, I'm not saying that this is more important more impo- but the, the the main difference i think is that is this huge dispersion 
of uh, of attention. I think the what social media do is that they're that they're a huge device to disperse attention, and that's and they're very efficient at that. And it's very difficult to reunite that attention. And so, going back to my government point, I think governments at some critical moments need needs united attention. This will become more and more difficult uh, in the context of social media, which are specializing in dispersing attention. I would come back to your point about equalization. I think this is important because social media is a two-way communication device. Uh, radio, cable, TV uh, is one way. In social media, you you project a message that you talk to the voters and you listen to the voters, which probably is very good for all democratic politicians, but also for populists who say we have a direct connection to people and we hear from people without uh, gatekeepers that you mentioned. And that maybe this uh, social media phenomenon is something which is indeed radically new. We're all not young and not getting any younger, but maybe we live in a new age where things are complicated. So uh, if you if you uh, think about potential responses of the governments who face this uh, uphill struggle, what would uh, you advise them to do? Well, I think there there is what they're doing, and then there's what there's should they should do. There is, right. So I think I think those are unfortunately two very different cons- uh, responses about what they're doing. I think they're not always doing use uh, resorting to the best possible answers. So uh, I think very often what they're doing is trying to keep up with this very dispersed attention because they can use this dispersed attention also to turn attention away from their own failures. So they, they can be very strategic about that themselves, right? Uh, talking about uh, making up controversies about things without having to pay attention to maybe there is a huge budget deficit, but we talk rather about immigration, right? So that's a rather classic, unfortunately, in the past few years. Uh, and and we've seen campaigns like um, the the vote on, on Brexit where, where clearly um, governments actively used uh, social media and this attention economy and the, this the dynamics of this attention economy to turn attention away from facts. <laughs> so there, so there, that can be that can become a, a a real problem. So what should they do? That's a that's a difficult question. I'm I I think I think I don't have a good answer to be very honest. I, I have a couple of hunches, and uh, one of them is that my feeling is that more consensual governments are doing uh, less well. Uh, better, sorry, than more majoritarian uh, uh, regimes. So majoritarian regimes are those where, especially you have an electoral system that favors, whereas a very small gain in votes will translate into a power change. Uh, As a consequence, uh, exaggerating, uh, um, handing out exaggerated news or even fake news uh, might in the short run have a just tilt the balance that much in your favor that you ultimately uh, take home victory, right? So, so, so there, there is an even an incentive maybe to abuse the the attention economy in your favor. Well, I believe that in uh, more consensual systems, typically with proportional electoral systems, um, it is much more difficult to lie about the person that you ask to join a coalition with you tomorrow. So there, so the the, the incentives the incentive structure is is a little different. This doesn't mean that the entire uh, political spectrum cannot move in one direction. After all, like one of the most consensual political systems in the world, which is Denmark, which basically is characterized by almost permanent minority governments, 
has moved collectively to the right on the migration issue and is implementing some of the strictest uh, migration policies in in recent history, uh, despite the fact of being otherwise a very liberal, politically liberal um, political system where, where where there's a lot of progress. One of the few areas where there is real equality between men and women, also with regard to uh, domestic housework and and thing, domestic chores and, and and things like that. But generally, and paternity leaves. Sorry, uh, paternity leaves. Paternity leaves, yeah. but but also like we, we there is we have data on on how uh, who who cooks and who do, who does the washing up and who does the laundry and so on and so forth. One of the few countries where there is more or less of an equilibrium is 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 Denmark. So my idea is that this in those more consensual countries you uh, you have a different incentive and that as a consequence you the exaggerations and the and the attention dispersion has a co- has a collective cost and and that none of the the um, the actors in place uh, have have an interest in contributing to that this doesn't mean that fringe act this does not mean that fringe actors will not still use social media to do exactly that but my hope my my impression is that this will be a little bit less the case than in majoritarian countries where even where even major actors have have an interest in dispersing attention yes we saw indeed winner takes all policies in yeah. presidential systems where even uh, with 50% some, in some countries with 48% you can become in, president in, of each country in the uk you win the elections with 35% right. on average but uh, let me challenge you on this indeed what you're saying is we have two three centrist parties in power and then uh, the voters start to think okay we have center right center left there is no difference let's try the fringe parties and so the system collapses in a sense uh, in a, uh, under a challenge of extreme left and extreme right. Uh, you come from Argentina, there the voters are now seem to be saying, mm. we've had left, we've had right, things are not improving, there is no difference when we look at inflation numbers. Uh, can we try something new? Something untested and so on. So in a sense, this idea that uh, cleavage of political uh, equilibrium is different in the sense that it's not left versus right, but it's more like establishment versus non-establishment. And since you rightly said, center left and center right like each other, collude, as populists would say, yeah. with each other, are in bed with each other, and don't really care about us ordinary people, that may also create an equilibrium where extreme left or extreme right can benefit, especially given social media. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's what I said. Why I said from the beginning, I don't have a good solution. Mm-hmm. I'm, this is my solution is entirely partial, and it's a supply side solution. While you're referring to the demand side, and uh, while I'm perfectly convinced that in politics the supply side structures the demand side, the the relationship is not perfect, right? So, and, and very clearly in in very many parts of the world, we have witnessed the evolution that you're alluding to. That after years of government by some kind of coalition of of centrist parties people feel upset in a world where uh inequality is rising where um the climate crisis creating a lot of anxiety uh we're also witnessing major disasters like like in libya which can uh, be referred back to to climate change so it is very clear that in this in this context where elites appear to be failing to uh the, uh, the 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 moderation of elites might be looked down upon with a lot of suspicion, and that's that's clearly when you we witness uh, phenomena like the rise of of Javier Milei in Argentina out of nowhere, right? So the 
that person was virtually unknown four years ago in that country, and now he looks like the best presidential hopeful for next year's election. That is very worrisome. Then again, this is a majoritarian country, so the, uh, my, my hope would still be that the, the change would be less radical in, in places like, like Denmark or, or, or Sweden, where we also have the far right in power. Uh, but at, at the same time, that's also, the, those countries also distinguish themselves by other factors which have nothing to do with the electoral system, which is extremely high levels of, of equality, extremely high levels of education, and so on and so forth. So the idea of just pinning it down to one factor is obviously uh, uh, yeah, elusive. This podcast is mostly about the guests, but my co-authors would not let me skip this opportunity to talk about our joint research, which is we looked at elections in European subnational regions yeah. from 2007 to 2018, and we actually saw that what you've said is really true regarding the rise of mobile broadband internet. We studied 400 uh, subnational regions. I the paper. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you. And we saw that indeed incumbent governments, center-left and center-right, lost confidence, lost votes, and then the populists actually gained both extreme left and extreme right. But interestingly, when populists themselves were in power, then this criticism coming from social media was actually hurting them as well. So in a sense, in a sense, what you're talking about is something that we've really observed in the last 10, 15 years. And the question is, well, what shall we do? So indeed, uh, electoral system is almost impossible to change. Uh, so if... Uh, if you're the president or prime minister of a country, or if you're an advisor to somebody, you say, you elites, you're in trouble. You incumbent government, you're in trouble. We want you to function well, uh, but uh, you're, fa you're facing a media landscape is not conducive. What kind of advice would you do? Or would, you, would you say you should do better on social media? You should be more... Um, uh, you should be more invested in thinking about communication strategy. Uh, you should uh, talk to people in the street. Uh, you should ban social media, regulate social media, and come back to one-channel TV. So what is, what is the solution? I think most of those solutions are not practicable and, and even debatable from a democratic point of view. But I, but I think there is one thing that I, I am worry, worried about, and that is the temptation by uh, mainstream politicians to join into the populist drive and they because that's something they do and we we regularly have uh, even very senior mainstream politicians questioning scientists when it doesn't suit their political agenda and that that i think is very very complicated they should they should lead the uh, the exam they should be an example for for the rest of society and show that there is an, a, a good way of doing things i know this might be electorally costly but this is a cost that they have to they have to carry and face if they if they w don't want politics to become to deteriorate further, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a, a world that we're going to, where uh, talking decently about policy issues and the the way we're going to solve problems is becoming more and more difficult. So if they if you join in those debates by making the same declarations as populist leaders would do, and we have unfortunately very many examples of this then you're contributing to this general deterioration of policy. So that's not a good, very positive solution. It's more of a solution to, to stop deterioration or to stop the, 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 the decline of, of, of good quality politics or good quality political debate. Uh, but that's as far as my solutions go at the moment. <laughs> Unfortunately, indeed, it's not a very optimistic solution. You're advising uh, mainstream politicians to take the high road, even if it's electorally costly. Absolutely. 
but uh, I agree that uh, this is a very complex question and I'm uh, looking forward to more discussions on this podcast. Uh, this whole season will be dedicated to these issues of the rise of uh, populist and authoritarian politicians, including in the Western countries. Yeah, but today, this is all for now. I would like to thank Emiliana Grossman for this uh, fascinating discussion. And I'm sure uh, we'll become more optimistic by the end of the season. Thank you, Emilian. Science, science, science.